Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hi guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I walk through Warren Buffett's letter to shareholders from Berkshire Hathaway's most recent annual report. Buffett's letters are always full of knowledge and long-term investing wisdom, optimism, and historical and important perspective. From never betting against America to share buybacks and the importance of retained earnings, to the four Berkshire jewels that drive most of the firm's value over time, Jack and I work through the details of the letter in an effort to help investors learn and grow from Buffett's knowledge. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this discussion around Warren Buffett's annual letter. Today, what we're going to do and what we decided to do is we wanted to uh, sort of work through Warren Buffett's um, annual letter to shareholders, which was released uh, last Saturday. There's obviously been a lot of um, media highlights uh, about the letter, but we thought we could kind of maybe work through work through this for our listeners. Um, for those that maybe haven't read those articles or maybe didn't read the letter, I think we encourage you to read the letter because there's a lot of obviously wisdom and um, I think nuggets of just really good information there. People can get the uh, annual letter on Berkshire Hathaway's website. You just go there and then just, I think you just look for annual letters and you'll find it. Um, and Buffett's, Buffett's part is the beginning of the letter. It's basically the first 15 pages. So maybe I'll just start. Um, his letters always start out with the performance of Berkshire Hathaway versus the S&P 500. So he used to report out the book value of Berkshire, but he moved it to actually the performance in terms of the market value of the shares. And he lists the returns going all the way back to uh, 1965, which is when Berkshire Hathaway was um, first founded. It, in, interestingly enough, not based on what I can, can tell, he actually doesn't talk about performance in the letter itself. Um, 2020 wasn't a great year for Berkshire Hathaway, but I don't think Buffett really cares about what happens in one year, but there wasn't too much mention of the uh, actual stock performance in the letter itself. Um, so just to start, he starts by talking about, and I think this is an important concept just for investors to understand. He starts by talking about the gap reported earnings of Berkshire Hathaway and the operating earnings. So just real quick, on a gap reported basis, the company um, earned $42.5 billion in 2020, but that number includes the unrealized gains of stock that they own. So what Buffett says is it's much cleaner, it's much better to use the operating earnings, which on an operating earnings basis, the company basically generated $22 billion, $21.9 billion in operating earnings. So I think the important thing there is just, you know, when you're thinking about sort of earnings that are reported out, you know, earnings can be pretty noisy. And so sometimes operating earnings, you know, are a much, much cleaner um, number. The other, um, and we're just, we're going to kind of just walk through the letter. So in terms of the next thing that jumped out at me, and then Jack, I'll let you kind of go, is Buffett, when he's talking about, and we'll get into some of the companies that he owns from a public stock standpoint, but what he points out is that the retained earnings of the businesses and stocks he owns, you know, that never really shows up in sort of the current 
earning stream, let's say. I mean, obviously the stocks that he owns, they're, they're being assigned a value in the marketplace and that value um, of the company is being determined from their earning stream. But as Buffett points out, there's the companies that he owns, some of them will go on to generate extremely good returns based on the retained earnings and some of them won't. But over time, businesses that can retain their earnings and actually generate um, positive returns on those earnings, that's a very important driver of value in stocks over time. And actually in last year's shareholder letter, he expanded on this concept quite significantly and gave like examples of how retained earnings over time um, can be extremely important in terms of driving, driving the value of, of a business. Uh, Jack, you want to kind of work through the next uh, point? Yeah. So uh, one of the things that struck me about it was his ability to admit his mistakes. And he, he was talking about the precision cast parts investment, which I think was an $11 billion write down. Um, and I'll read from the letter because I thought it was really interesting. You know, when you, when you take a step, step back and think about it, you know, Buffett is, a, is what, 90 some odd years old now. He's probably in terms of if you look at the rate of return he's generated and the length of the period he's generated over, he's probably the greatest investor of all time. And yet he always spends time talking about the things he did wrong. And so that there, there's a lesson for all of us in that who are, you know, are unwilling to admit our mistakes in investing, that if the greatest investor of all time spends this much time on his mistakes, we should probably some, spend some time on ours as well. But I'll read it because I think it was really interesting. Um, the final component in our gap figure, that ugly $11 billion write-down, is almost entirely the quantification of a mistake I made in 2016. That year, Berkshire purchased precision cast parts, and I paid too much for the company. No one misled me in any way. I was simply too optimistic about PCC's normalized profit potential. Last year, my miscalculation was laid bare by adverse developments throughout the aerospace industry, PCC's most important source of customers. In purchasing PCC, Berkshire bought a fine company, the best in the business. Mark Donegan, PCC CEO, is a passionate manager who consistently pours the same energy into the business that he did before we purchased it. We we're lucky to have him running things. I believe I was right in concluding that PCC would over time earn good returns on the net tangible assets deployed in its operations. I was wrong, however, in judging the average amount of future earnings and consequently wrong in my calculation of the proper price to pay for the business. PCC is far from my first error of that sort, but it's a big one. So it's, it's really interesting. I mean, you're looking at someone who's been this successful and he's, he's admitting you know, a bunch of mistakes in that. And, and also it's, it goes to what's a really important point for everyone to think about, which is great businesses at the wrong price are bad investments. Um, and so if, if Buffett even gets tripped up by that sometimes, you'd expect you know, a lot of other investors will get tripped up by the same thing because no, no matter how good the business is, and he talks about how this is still a good business and th things are still going well inside the business, his, his criticism of himself is basically, I just paid too much for it. And, and that's, that's a trap that a lot of people have fallen into over time. So I think, I think it was a really good lesson to, to learn, you know, first of all, that one of the greatest investors of all time is you know, being this honest about his mistakes, but also that we all have a tendency to overpay for businesses and that can be a problem even if it's a good business. Yeah, and that I think relates perfectly to the next point about conglomerates, um, which is, you know, where he was basically talking about how, and it kind of made me think of like General Electric. He didn't use General Electric at all, but, it, you know, that a lot of times these conglomerates, you know, that are aggregating these businesses and buying businesses outright, you know, they pay way too much for uh, the companies that they're buying. And that ultimately ends up being, you know, bad for the long-term value of those conglomerate type companies. Yeah, there's two things there. You know, one is obviously when you're when you are when your only criteria is I want to buy a whole company, 
well, you're going to pay for that control. And so you end up paying a higher price, you know, in order to get that control, you end up paying a higher price and maybe you end up overpaying for the business. The other thing which you pointed out in the letter, which I thought was really good is a lot of great companies just don't want to sell the whole company. And so you're really limiting your universe. If you only look at companies that are willing to sell the entire company to you, first of all, you're, you're limiting your universe because some great companies don't want to do that, but also you're limiting in terms of size. So for instance, the Apple investment, doesn't work if you're only trying to buy the entire company. Berkshire's obviously not going to buy all of Apple. So, you know, that, that's a great investment where if, he, if his criteria was, I'm only buying the entire company, he never would have made it. So I think those are, I think he's right about that. And I think, you know, you, you want to be flexible and in, in he's showing that and that he's not, he does buy some entire companies, but he's also willing to take much smaller stakes if he think that's, thinks that's what right, for, right for Berkshire. Yeah, absolutely. So he talked about the four jewels of Berkshire Hathaway. He talked about the insurance business, um, and the float that that has, basically there's a $138 billion float on the insurance business that they can use to basically redeploy in investments. Um, there's Burlington Northern Railroad, which is, um, I think the largest railroad in the country. Buffett bought that, uh, company. Um, I think it was maybe 2010, 2011. I'm not sure the exact year, but that's the, that's the second jewel. And then he said the third and fourth jewels are basically a toss up between, the company's 5.4% stake in Apple and Berkshire's energy business. So those are, when you think about the drivers of value for Berkshire and its stock price, those are the things that are going to um, matter the most. There's a lot of other companies he owns both in the public markets and they have a lot of um, actual businesses that they own. Like you said, they, they own fully, but those are the big drivers of, uh, of what drives the value in Berkshire. Yeah, I mean, it still amazes me what he, you know, and this kind of gets to our next point here, what he, what he was able to do with, with Apple. Um, you know, if you, if you think about, like, first of all, that's been, what, I, don't know, I forget what his total profit is on Apple right now, but it's, it's, it's a massive amount of profit. And it's, it's something that for much of Buffett's career, he never would, inve would have invested in. And, you know, his, his ability to pivot has been so impressive um, that he, he went from a deep value guy to sort of a value and quality guy. And now who, who wouldn't invest in technology to now a guy that realizes, you know, technology's matured and, and I need to operate in that space. And that's led to a lot of profits for him. So I, I think it's great because it shows Buffett's flexibility and Buffett's ability to change his strategy you know, when it, when it fits in order to benefit shareholders. Yeah. And by the way, I think that plays right into the next part of the article, which is where he's talking about buybacks. I mean, for a long time, I think Berkshire Hathaway had a, uh, sort of, I think the company, the stock needed to trade below book value for them to buy back the stock. And Buffett's been very critical of buybacks because he basically says a lot of, you know, companies when buying back their stock, they're buying it at expensive levels. And so therefore those buybacks aren't good and they don't add value over the long term for the company. But Berkshire actually started buying a pretty significant portion of its stock back last year, spent $25 billion on buying its stock back last year. And then he also talks about how Apple is buying back its own stock. So you get like a enhanced, you know, because Apple's buying back its stock and Berkshire Hathaway owns a very large percentage of Apple and Berkshire has been buying back its stock. It's like you get this magnified effect of increased, you know, profit um, as a shareholder because the buybacks are reducing the share count. So that was something that he, he sort of talked about in the article. And I certainly encourage folks to read that. It's like, uh, you, you've coined a new term here, the double buyback. Yeah, exactly. Um, you're, maybe, you're basically getting buybacks on both ends of it. Maybe we can have a new, uh, new, new strategy, the double buyback strategy. <laughs> yeah, we could launch an ETF, although there, I don't think there's too many stocks that actually could actually be in there. Right. But, uh, right. but um, 
Yeah, you know, I was thinking there were, there were a couple things that takeaways for me on the, the buyback thing. One is, you know, I think some politicians who have been in the news recently may want to read the letter because, you know, this whole idea that, you know, although buybacks can certainly be a bad thing when used in the wrong way, this whole idea that buybacks are just always a bad thing, you know, if, if that's the case, the, you know, one of the best investors of all time would not be sitting here buying back his stock. Um, so, you know, there's a tendency to think, and, and again, buybacks can be used, you know, when buybacks are used where companies are issuing stock options, you know, beyond what they should to their executives and then using buybacks to wash that out, you know, obviously that's a terrible use of buybacks, but the vehicle of a buyback itself, there's nothing wrong with it. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because if you look at what, what Berkshire is, their investable universe is actually pretty small. I mean, they can't buy small cap stocks. They're, they're not going to invest in mid cap stocks. Um, and even part of the, you know, the large cap universe is not available to them. So it's certainly possible that within that universe where Buffett sees the most value right now is his own company. And so if he sees the most value in his own company in that universe, why wouldn't he buy back his stock? I mean, it would be, you know, he'd be doing a disservice to shareholders if he invested in some other business that he doesn't think is attractive instead of buying back his own stock. So I think it's great that he's been, that he's been buying back his stock, um, you know, and, and Berkshire hasn't, hasn't done well in recent years. So it's probably a, a fairly attractive value relative to, relative to some of the other things he's looking at. Yeah, I just wanted to quickly hit on some of the top holdings. Um... Uh, in the in his portfolio right now, basically he owns. Uh, of course, the top one is Apple. And to answer your question, he has a cost basis on Apple of 31 billion. Its market value as of the end of last year was was 120 billion. So in terms of the dollar size, you know he's up 90 billion dollars 90 billion dollars in that investment since 2016. Um, and like we mentioned, he owns 5.4 percent of the largest company uh, in the world. Uh, 18 billion dollars in American Express. 31 billion dollars in Bank of America has a $21 billion stake in Coke. And then, you know, after that, it kind of drops off. Um, he has a $13 billion stake in Kraft Heinz, although they don't report that as a publicly traded company. Um, I don't know if Kraft is now private or what, but the point is, is that, you know, his, his when I look at Buffett's publicly traded stocks that he owns, he basically has a huge stake in Apple. And then a lot of it is like financial related companies. So, when you think about what you're getting when you buy Berkshire Hathaway, you're getting that type of exposure, and then you get obviously the big insurance piece um, through Geico, and then you also have uh, the railroad and the energy piece. So it's a, it really is a, a truly, you know, it's, to some extent it doesn't seem diversified, but it, when you think about it in that way, it, it is a pretty diversified set of businesses. Yeah, you know, obviously, like we mentioned before, I mean, he doesn't have that many businesses to choose from, so it it, it is impressive that he he's built a pretty diversified group of you know high quality businesses given given what he can invest in and given what's available to him. Did you think that um, I when I was reading the part where he talked about all the different types of investors that can buy Berkshire Hathaway, which I'll, I'll let you talk about, but I mean that's exactly what we talked about with um, Professor Cunningham on the podcast. Yeah, and what's interesting about Buffett is, you know, what what Professor Cunningham called the high quality shareholders. I mean, that's basically what Buffett exclusively focuses on. So some companies, you know, want any kind of shareholder they can get. You know, they just want you to buy their stock. Buffett really everything he does in the letter, you know, he won't split the stock. He's not going crazy about, you know, what earnings versus estimates in any given quarter. I mean, everything he does is based on based around these people that hold the stock for the long term and that hold the stock for the right reasons. And so I think that's really important because it, you know, he just doesn't care about any of these short term things. He doesn't care if the, the stock price goes down in the short term. You know, he's really focused on the, the kind of shareholders that will stick with him throughout anything and the kind of shareholders that are really big believers in the company. And, you know, you see that in in the way sort of every aspect of how he operates the business. 
Yeah, so he talked about there just a, there's five types of shareholders. There's the owners, which is basically like Buffett and you know Munger. So that's number one. Number two is index funds, the vanguards of the world. Number three is the active professionals. So those people maybe trying to beat the market that allocate to Berkshire Hathaway. And then number four is active investors or what Professor Cunningham would call, I think, transients. And then there's five, which is the most important shareholder to Buffett. It's these long-term individual investor shareholders. And I think he gives some examples in the letter of like this doctor group that invested with, they were in the original Berkshire partnership and that got liquidated, but then their share got converted over to Berkshire Hathaway. And, you know, these guys are still in Berkshire Hathaway, probably worth tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars. So those are the types of shareholders that, you know, like you said, Buffett really wants to, to get on the bus. And I think the evidence is, is pretty um, uh, strong that the, the turnover in the shareholder base is very low. That's something that Professor Cunningham has highlighted in his research that the people that actually are investing with Berkshire Hathaway, they, they are sticking with him for a very long period of time. Yeah, I mean, if you looked at every public company and said, you know, what percentage of their shareholders are these high quality shareholders, I would have to think Berkshire might be number one on the list. Um, you know, he, he's done everything you possibly could to attract those kind of shareholders. And it seems like he's been successful. And, you know, I, I think that's good for that's certainly good for Berkshire, Berkshire long term. So the middle of the letter, I'm not going to go through this in too much detail, but he basically is talking about all these different success stories going back to uh, C's Candy or Clayton Homes or National Indemnity or these um, or pilot travel centers. He basically is giving you some historical perspective around how these companies were formed and um, how they have survived and been successful over time. I mean, another one is the Nebraska Furniture Mart, and he talks about how it was a, a, a mother and son, but the son went off to World War II, and then when the son came back, basically the company had like, I don't know, very, had like $50 in its checking account. And now, you know, it barely survived, but they were able to, they were able to survive. And now it's like one of the largest furniture companies in the uh, country. And, you know, Berkshire Hathaway basically owns it. So anyways, those are just, you know, um, those are cool stories to, I think, read about because he brings so much historical sort of perspective, um, you know, using these companies as examples. But his overall point with all of that is, you know, never bet against America. He's a believer that American capitalism and the ability to succeed and, um, you know, create success stories in this country are, it's, it's probably the best in the world. So he's, that's a message I think he's continued to drive home um, for basically decades now is, you know, don't bet against America when it comes to our ability and the com companies in this country to thrive and be successful. Yeah, and there's so much noise out there right now in the market. I mean, you've got things with GameStop and options dealers and people buying, you know, tons of call options. And, you know, it's th that's an important message to probably keep in mind with all of this is we all get wrapped up in all this craziness that's going on day to day. But, you know, the odds are, you know, 20 years from now, we're not going to be too concerned about that. And so I, th I think it's good he's sort of bringing it back to an overall message everybody can sort of understand and believe in versus all this noise we probably get caught in up in on a day to day basis. Yeah, that's one thing that Jason Zweig is. Uh, talked about with Buffett and Munger is their message is consistent. Like if you read this letter and then you go back 20 years from now and read, you know, another letter, listen to maybe an interview they gave, a lot of the messaging has been consistent. And that's, that's important. And I think that consistency is 
plays back into, you know, the types of shareholders they get, which is, you know, their message hasn't changed. They haven't toggled. They've stuck to their guns. They stuck to their investment philosophy. Now, with that being said, Buffett has also maintained some flexibility to the point where he, you know, wasn't buying technology stocks, but then he pivoted and bought Apple and sort of opened his eyes maybe to the value of intangible assets or assets that, you know, you can't really see on the balance sheet. So, but I, I don't think that that's, um, you know, I think you can evolve as an investor like he has shown the ability to do, um, but still maintain sort of that important, consistent message about what he believes it takes to be successful in investing and some of the stuff we've talked about. So, And it's a, a lot of people don't want to hear it right now. I mean, if you looked at the most traded stocks on Robinhood, I bet Berkshire is not anywhere to be found on there. Um, so a lot of these people that are coming into the market now don't want to necessarily invest in a company with that type of message, but it is the, it is the right message long-term. I mean, trying to do this day trading and option buying, I mean, that, that typically ends badly in the long-term. And so that, that is the right message for people to follow. One other just quick little interesting fact I, I, I thought, and this was, and Buffett wrote this, he didn't, even, he didn't even know this about his own company, but basically Berkshire Hathaway has the highest amount of assets on its balance sheet compared to any other company. So Berkshire has $154 billion in depreciated fixed assets on its balance sheet compared to AT&T at $127 billion. And one of the things he sort of says in the letter is, you know, it's better to find companies and invest in companies that don't need a high amount of fixed assets to maintain or generate profits and try to maintain high margins. But there can be some good investments like Burlington Northern that, you know, these are capital intensive businesses. They require, you know, big investments back into infrastructure, but they also, you know, mint nice profitability. So he, he sort of is just highlighting the how, I guess, you know, big Berkshire is in terms of its asset base, but then sort of uses that as a way to talk about, you know, some, it's good to find asset, maybe lighter businesses that are, have higher margins, but you can find companies like Burlington Northern that um, do have a lot of capital, but generate a lot of profits as well. Was there anything just before we wrap up, was there anything you wanted to uh, highlight that he didn't discuss or anything that jumped out at you? Well, no, we talked about it before. I mean, he definitely didn't talk about as much about what's going on with the market right now. He didn't he didn't talk about GameStop or, or any of those things in the news. And, you know, that, that's probably a good thing. I mean, again, you know, his message is always a long term message. And, you know, a lot of that is is noise. And I, I don't know what commentary he would have provided around that anyway. So but it was it was a little surprising. I mean, he, he didn't talk much about the I mean, unless I missed part of it, he didn't talk much about what's going on in the market right now at all. Um, I mean, he really focused on more of a long term message. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I, yeah, I, I thought there might be because the Buffett indicator is like an all-time high, I thought there might be, he has in other shareholder letters talked about uh, not necessarily maybe valuations, although like they can't find any opportunities because things look expensive or whatever. So, you know, you didn't get a lot of that or any of that in, in this letter. I, I was kind of thinking that, you know, maybe he might signal, and even though Buffett is anti-dividend, I get it because he doesn't like double taxation, so companies have to pay tax on the profit, and then shareholders have to pay. But some some people have been advocating because they hold so much cash. Um, but I guess he's buying back stock, so it's a more efficient way to put that capital um, to work. But yeah, you didn't hear about Bitcoin. You didn't hear about SPACs. You really didn't hear about Buffett's replacement. And you also didn't hear about Wessler and, and, and uh Ted Wessler and Todd Combs, which I, I kind of thought was a little interesting, although I think Todd Combs now runs Geico, so he might be a little bit less involved in the investment side of it. But those things just, I don't know, those were interesting things that were, you know, weren't mentioned. So um, anyway, so yeah, just in conclusion, I think, you know, 
the reason we're talking about this is because Buffett's letter is full of wisdom. I think it offers really, they offer a combination of like history, long-term investing, wisdom and concepts. You get some accounting in there. You obviously get the discussion around stocks and companies and things like retained earnings. And just, I think like they say, if you, if you basically read a couple things in the markets, Warren Buffett's letters, Howard Marks memos, and maybe some Ray Dalio stuff, you know, you're going to get a significant amount of what you need to be a, you know, successful, educated investor. And I would certainly recommend people start with Buffett's letters because they are excellent and they're always fun to read and um, insightful. Yeah, and hopefully we'll get to a point here where tons of people will go down to Omaha again, you know, and go to the annual meeting and get that whole event going because that, that is definitely something I think everybody's missed. For sure. All right, guys, thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Hi, guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.